The Monsters That Made Us is brought to you by the Cage Club Podcast Network. For all things movies, music, media, monsters, and more, head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Today we return to Carfax Abbey, just moments after Professor Van Helsing hammered a stake through the heart of Count Dracula, putting an end to his 500-year reign of terror. After turning himself into the local authorities, Van Helsing enlists the aid not of a lawyer, but of a psychiatrist, Dr. Jeffrey Garth, who was once a star student of his. Meanwhile, Dracula's daughter, the entrancing Countess Maria Zaleska, arrives in town, seeking a cure for her own vampirism. When the ritualistic destruction of her father's body fails to rid her of her desire for human blood, she turns to the skeptical Dr. Garth for help. But unfortunately for Countess Zaleska, Hypnosis and sheer force of will are no match for this ancient affliction, and as the citizens of London will soon come to learn, the bloodshed is far from over. Join us as we head back to London to clear Van Helsing's name and stop Dracula's daughter. To a new world of gods and monsters. Listen to them. Children of the night. It's alive, it's alive, it's alive! I tell you, I killed a wolf, a plain, ordinary wolf. Today we're talking about Dracula's Daughter, starring Gloria Holden. I'm the Invisible Dan Cologne, and joining me as always is my co-host and sometimes psychiatrist, Monster Mike Manzi. How's it going, Mike? Good evening, Dan. How are you? It's nice to pick up right where we left off. Yeah, it's been five years since we last checked in with Carfax Abbey and the family of Dracula. And you know, it's a bit of a wonder that it took five years for Universal to follow up, right? I mean, the Great Depression was happening. You would think that this would be like easy money. But of course, it should come to no surprise that Dracula's Daughter was yet another universal horror production rife with pre-production issues. Yeah, I was thinking about this briefly before the show where it's like the Wolfman, as we were discussing last week, maybe not the hit they were looking for. Let's go back to the beginning and, and see what we can take out of Dracula's story again and see what we got there. Every film, as we know, like goes through a whole pre-production process. And a lot of films are really tumultuous. But, you know, as, as we go through these and I get to see like the, the gritty details of everything that these films go through, like I keep coming back to this, but it's amazing they get made at all. But things were so bad for Dracula's daughter that the mounting costs actually made it Universal's most expensive horror film to date. And what's more, the only returning cast member was Edward Van Sloan. You know, they didn't have Bela Lugosi to put butts in seats, you know? Not only that, two other main characters are suspiciously absent from the entire movie. Not that those were 
were played by huge stars or, or anything like that, but I'm just wondering, where did all the money go if we don't have these huge name actors leading this film? What did happen with this production? I mean, while it doesn't really match Bride of Frankenstein's levels of claim, I do see a fair amount of love for it, though. You know, I'm, I liked it quite a bit. I mean, its star, Gloria Holden, is absolutely stunning in the title role. She brings a level of gravitas that is, at least in my opinion, on par with Bela Lugosi. And its leading man, played by Otto Kruger, is head and shoulders above John Harker, at least in his ability to take charge. No disrespect to David Manners there. Yeah, and, you know, Marguerite Churchill as Janet just sort of leaps off the screen, just sort of great comedic timing, in my opinion, and uh, adds a lot to this story. Yeah, she is absolutely a breath of fresh air in a horror movie. Like, I love, so far, like, all of these monster movies have had a pretty healthy dose of comedy in them. Like, some are more effective than others, I think, but all of them work. I love how much comedy there is. Yeah, different directors are bringing their different styles of comedy, and while this isn't like James Wales or anything like that, I still feel like it works in its own way, and I quite enjoyed how it was integrated into the story. Yes. One of the things I think is most noteworthy about Dracula's Daughter is that its primary villain is a woman. Now, we've already discussed our origins with vampires in our Dracula episode, but considering that so many vampires in history are male, I was curious to know your history with female vampires. Do you remember where that started for you? You know, Dan, I think I'm going to have to beat you to the chase this time and go with the Munsters. Uh, with Lily Munster, she was definitely at the forefront in my childhood of female vampires, but I, I always had thought Elvira was a vampire until I was older. I didn't know she was a human. I always thought she was some kind of like monster. Uh, I remember Vampirella being a very predominant uh, image on the comic racks, I guess, when I was a kid. But yeah, pretty much Lily, I would have to go with uh, first and foremost. Yeah, she's a classic. And of course, she was a big presence in my life as well. But I'll, I'll let you have it this time. <laughs> There's a Lily in this movie. I wonder if uh, inspiration was drawn from this. I wonder. Visually speaking, I've always thought of Lily as, as being more influenced by the Bride of Frankenstein, you know, the black hair with the, the white streak. But that doesn't mean that's the only inspiration, of course. No, and I also think that, you know, just while we're on the topic uh, quickly of female vampires, I feel like this image, the, the Gloria Holden, when she came on screen, I immediately thought of the film A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. Oh, yeah. Which is only a few years old and Iranian, I think, as well, like a foreign film and stuff. But the imagery is, it's all black and white and the imagery feels very close to, to this movie as well. Yes. You've hit probably the two biggest ones for me. Oh, well, Girl Walks Home Alone at Night is not an early influence for me, of course. I, you said it came out a few years ago, but that's spot on comparison, but certainly Lily Munster. A couple others that came to mind for me are Sama Hayek in From Dusk Till Dawn. Not a whole lot to work with character-wise, you know, she just has that one iconic scene. But in terms of seductive female vampires, that's definitely going to be pretty high on my list. Also, I would say Aaliyah in Queen of the Damned in 2002. And just in terms of, I wanted to throw in another female vampire. I mentioned on the show before that like college is really where I started to to get really invested in horror films. And during that time, I discovered Let the Right One In when that came out in 2008. So technically, you know, in the body of a child, you know, not a seductive female vampire, but a female vampire nonetheless. I wanted to give her some credit as well. Yeah, and they're all over True Blood, which I loved when that was on. That was a lot of fun. That show was very campy at times very very gory at other times and pretty much the only other instance that like struck 
accord when I was sort of doing research. I've never seen this movie, and I'm sure we'll talk about it a little bit, but Vampiros Lesbos. Yes. And while I've never seen it, I know that it has uh, has a reputation. So I, I've seen it. I own it. It's excellent. I mean, that came out at a time, I think in the 70s, when foreign horror films, particularly Italian, they, they'd basically take a script for what was essentially a softcore porn and then give it like a supernatural horror element and then call it a horror film and vampiros lesbos is is one of those and i think it's excellent i think it's a beautiful film and um i don't know how much that would have drawn from this but it certainly perpetuated the idea of a seductive sexy female vampire yeah. Okay, with that, let's get into Dracula's Daughter's production. I actually learned quite a bit about this one, and um, I think it's pretty interesting how this movie could have turned out. You know, the more I read about it and the more I saw, like, where it started and, and the direction they were trying to take it, I really wish I, I could see this movie. As much as I do enjoy Dracula's Daughter in its finished state, it is pretty sanitized. When, when I get into the details of what this movie could have been, I feel like you'll be salivating on the other end you know <laughs> i've never seen this movie before this is my first time watching it i watched it twice uh, for the recording while it is tamed by today's nature i'm still surprised they were able to get away with as much innuendo as they were with the haze code in effect you know i'll just say that much you know they they imply a lot Yes, they do. Okay, so in 1934, producer David O. Selznick, who listeners would know as the producer of King Kong, A Star is Born, Rebecca, Spellbound, and most famously, Gone with the Wind. With the exception of King Kong, this is all this is before all of that, you know. So he hadn't really become David O. Selznick yet. I mean, he was on his way with King Kong, certainly. He was interested in getting in on the horror game and wanted to make his own vampire film. So in 1934, he bought the right to a short story called Dracula's Guest, which was an excised chapter from Bram Stoker's original novel Dracula. Uh, it was published posthumously as a short story, and Selznick purchased it for $5,000 from Bram Stoker's widow. And then he took that, and he hired Universal scribe John L. Balderston to write a treatment. His treatment deviated wildly from the source material, as, as a lot of these adaptations did at the time. But Balderston claimed at the time that his previous horror assignments, which would include Dracula and the Mummy, had, quote, dropped off in their last thirds due to scheduling and financial pressures. And he insisted that this did not happen with Dracula's daughter. Balderson also held the belief that an audience at the time might more readily accept a female vampire seducing a young man than vice versa. So he decided to take all of this sort of dissatisfaction with what had happened and this brand new idea and just go balls to the wall with it. I, I've got a quote here from John Balderston, which speaks to the exact sort of movie he was looking to make. He said, quote, Why should Cecil B. DeMille have a monopoly on the great box office values of torture and cruelty in pictures about ancient Rome? I want to <laughs> see her loathsome deaf mute servants carry into her boudoir savage looking whips chains straps etc and hear the cries of the tortured victims without seeing exactly what happens i feel sure that so long as it is a woman torturing men the thing is not too unendurable as it would have been had the man dracula so treated his female victims end quote wow so he wanted to go like full-on snm bondage with him like we had a little bdsm in here there's still lingering aftershocks i guess of his original concept but that is crazy 
Yeah. Now we're getting into that sort of 70s softcore porn vampire movie, right? Yeah, but I mean when you that that is sort of the one thing kind of missing from all of this stuff so far is like the the torture chamber device kind of stuff and, and I feel like that becomes more prominent later on. Until you mention it, I am surprised, you know, we don't get a lot of that previously. Well, I just looked it up and Universal had made The Black Cat in 1934. If you remember that film, Boris Karloff gets flayed alive in that. And I mean, of course, it's all done in in tasteful way where you you don't really see it, but it's you know it's all implied. But still, I, that's a, that's a pretty grisly horror film for the 1930s, and it makes me wonder why they couldn't get away with more here. It's almost like the saw of its day, you know. It's like the torture porn horror of its time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I get where Balderson's coming from, and I, I wish that more of this had made it in but because of the Hayes code and everything of course it was this would have, this movie would have been impossible to make as he envisioned it his 20 page treatment began just as the finished film does with a, a final scene in Dracula with Van Helsing staking Dracula in the cellars of Carfax Abbey and then he moves back to Transylvania to destroy Dracula's brides but he misses the concealed body of Dracula's daughter who then travels to London and sets her sights on a young aristocrat Van Helsing and Dr. Stewart recognize what's going on and ally themselves with that young man and his fiancée to take down the Countess. That plot mirrors the original Dracula film a little more than I would like, but I do kind of enjoy where it differs. You know, I think that I like the angle here. It's still pretty close. The sequence is a little out of order from what you said. Like, they do end up going back to Transylvania eventually. But I love how the Universal sequels up to now are sort of doing the same trick, where it's a direct sequel. It picks up immediately after pretty much the last shot of the last movie, just like in The Bride of Frankenstein. I am enjoying that consistency. I love that idea, and I think it worked well, and it, and it got me immediately reinvested in what was going on. Definitely. And now, of course, MGM could not produce this due to the myriad legal challenges involved with making a Dracula movie. You know, Universal owned Dracula at the time. And there's been speculation about this because in 1934, David Selznick sold the rights to the story to Universal for $12,500 under the condition that production commenced by October 1935. It's a deadline that would be extended multiple times before the movie actually got started. But there's been speculation that Selznick knew what he was doing when he bought the short story knowing he couldn't make the movie and would have to sell it to Universal. You know, I think it might have been a, um, a shrewd business move on his part, snatching up this unclaimed piece of Dracula and kind of dangling it in front of Universal universal for the money. I wouldn't be surprised at all. I wasn't able to confirm that, but I think it's very easy to believe that that's most likely what happened. Now, Universal, in addition to the story, they also got John Balderson's treatment. They weren't really interested in that, but they did send it off to R.C. Sheriff, screenwriter of The Invisible Man, to write the script. Also of note, Universal also supposedly rejected a treatment for this story written by Kurt Newman, who directed The Fly the 1950s The Fly. Okay, he's come up before as well. Yeah, he's primarily a director, but supposedly he did come up with his own treatment for this film. It's interesting how all the monster men are crossing over now. We've got King Kong and The Fly yes. working on Dracula. I wouldn't be surprised if, like, at the time, horror was a cheap way for them to pay the bills, you know? King Kong was a smash. It's There's a quick funny story about that. It was still in theaters when Son of Kong came out. 
so at this time, this was about spring 1935, Junior Lamley was still at Universal and he was fully intending to produce this film and he was going to have Bela Lugosi reprise his role as Dracula and they were going to have James Whale direct it. We've discussed this already. James Whale was not really into directing horror films. I mean, in many ways, he was sort of above the genre, you know, at least he wasn't striving to make horror movies. He wanted to make great films that happened to be about monsters, right? Yeah, yeah. I think he was using the horror or genre to say other things, right? Yes. So he was very wary of directing two horror films in a row. So instead of taking Dracula's daughter outright, he convinced Junior Lamley to acquire the rights to a novel called The Hangover Murders, and in exchange, he would direct Dracula's daughter. But by the time Whale had made the film based on The Hangover Murders, which was called Remember Last Night, actress Irene Dunn had finished working on a different film, Magnificent Obsession, and the two immediately went to work on Showboat, which left no time for Dracula's daughter. Now, more speculation here. It's possible James Whale knew or at least hoped that this extra film would tie him up and not leave any space to do Dracula's daughter anyway, you know, so who knows? Again, another sort of crafty move by a creative to sort of make a power play in a way, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Interesting that like, this movie's being like used to position people. 100%, yeah. So by Christmas, Junior Lamley had bowed out of the production in order to concentrate on two other films, Lucky Baldwin and a remake of The Phantom of the Opera, neither of which he would ever make. Now these movies got made, of course, but you know, not under Lamley. With Lamley out of the producer's chair, uh, a man named E.M. Asher, who was the associate producer on Dracula and Frankenstein, was announced as the new producer. But the next day, Universal hinted that A. Edward Sutherland, who would go on to direct The Invisible Woman, would be their first producer-director. However, two days after that, Universal confirmed Asher as the producer and Sutherland as the director. By January 6th, after the third extension of the start date, Universal cut the budget to Dracula's daughter pretty severely. This thing was running way over budget. This moment right here could be why Dracula's daughter is not like ultimately considered like one of the big classics. You know, they just didn't have the money to pour into it. That could be one argument for it. I mean, I have, I suspect that those early films were classics because of the creatives who made them, but you know, and not the money necessarily, but I mean, this certainly cutting the budget probably in half didn't help. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's actually, I felt that there's a noticeable sort of change in the production value not that it's poor by any means but just that it seemed like they had less resources to do it and uh, from what you're saying I'm, I'm starting to figure out where all that money went sort of tying up the property with delays and things like that and pushing it back and you know James Wales like I'm sure they had to give him a stipend or, or a bit of money to keep him hanging around and interested and just like the way it's changing hands so much is not cheap you know and like that goes for every movie and Universal's rushing to get this thing into production they're already on their third deadline and they don't have a script yet you know they they don't really have a cast yet you know so time is not on their side and i think that the rushing to get it started uh, also contributed to some of that as well for sure so now with the the film scheduled to begin production on january 26th a edward sutherland bowed out due to other commitments and was replaced with lambert hillier who uh previously directed the invisible ray 
Jane Wyatt, who was in James Whale's One More River, she was cast as the romantic lead as Universal waited for Bella Lugosi to be clear from The House of a Thousand Candles. So now R.C. Sheriff's script that they were going to go with began with a Dracula origin. So keep in mind, this is Lugosi still in the film. This is like sort of where their angle is to keep him in the movie. So the film would open with a Dracula origin where Dracula is depicted as a sadistic nobleman in the Middle Ages, hosting extravagant parties featuring virginal village girls as the entertainment. And during a particularly debaucherous evening, a quote, white wizard appeared and turned the guests into swine and placed the curse of the undead on Dracula's head. Wow. So I love the concept of showing the sort of origin, I guess, of him turning into a vampire. I guess he's Count Dracula already, and he's just, he doesn't get that moniker from becoming a vampire, from what I understand. But the way in which they're going to depict it is bananas. Like, it would have been way cooler if they did what, like, Coppola ended up doing, which was just show him as, like, a battle-crazed, like, maniac, you know, with the, the whole Vlad the Impaler sort of angle, yes. I guess. That's cool. I think their head's in the right place. I just don't know if they got the right sort of angle right there with the white wizard and all that kind of thing. <laughs> right. And the other Dracula origin that comes to mind for me, I'm sure there are others. I just can't, I can't think of them off the top of my head. Coppola certainly stands out. But the other that I thought of was from Dracula Untold, which is similar to Coppola's origin in that he's a warrior. They don't really get into like the Vlad the Impaler angle in that, if, if memory serves, I can't remember. But impossible to make it, right? Like this, to have orgy parties. Dracula as Caligula. Yeah, exactly right. So Robert Breen, who I've mentioned on the show before, he was the head of the production code administration. He rejected it outright, citing, quote, countless offensive stuff. The whole kinky nature of Dracula is really starting to become obvious now, you know what I'm saying? It's like, we can't do this if it's not about sex, you know? That's what the studio seems to be putting out their vibe as. Like, they're going too far. I mean, you can't do an orgy on screen in the 30s, no matter where you are, I would imagine, you know? But the idea that this one has to be sort of like more emphasis on the sex, I think, was uh, is what they're really pushing here. R.C. Sheriff rewrote the script. He submitted a more toned-down draft, which was also rejected due to implied sex, violence, and alleged debauchery. So, like, uh, there was just no moving forward with this script. So, with their deadline looming, Universal called for a complete overhaul of the script. They tossed out Sheriff's script entirely, and they hired Frankenstein co-writer Garrett Fort to write an entirely new script. Like, I have never seen this happen. They're within a month of production, and they just say, we're throwing out everything and starting from scratch. That is bold. That is fly by the seat of your pants, I guess. They're finally, like, all of this meticulous planning has just brought us nothing but trouble. Let's just wing it. With Garrett Fort tasked with toning down the horror, the character of Dracula was eliminated entirely. Now, Bela Lugosi, like, who knows how he responded to that news. He, unfortunately, didn't get a chance to cement himself as the quintessential screen Dracula until the 1940s, when he did Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. It, it took that long for him to properly play Dracula again for Universal. Universal was still obligated to pay him $4,000, even though he didn't end up in the film. So, he didn't walk away empty-handed. No, by no means. And it's interesting, you know, they say, like, maybe it's 
not as scary because Dracula's in it. I still think this one's scary. I think this is scarier than The Werewolf of London. Like, I was sort of having problems with the last movie being like, it's not really, like, the horror's there, but I'm not really getting, like, it's not giving me goosebumps or anything, but this movie does. Like, this movie, with its ideas and, and the way it talks about stuff, there's more to horror. Like, I feel like this movie knows there's more to horror than just killing something on screen or showing violence, right? Like, there's more to horror than violence, and I think that this movie gets that across. Yeah, and I think it was smart. Unlike Dracula, Bela Lugosi's Dracula, I find... Gloria Holden's character, Countess Zaleska, to be much more sympathetic and much more a victim of her own impulse, which can be a metaphor for all kinds of things from alcoholism and drug addiction to, you know, whatever. So I find her to be much more sympathetic. Of course, she has her sort of villainous turn uh, in the final act, but I love this idea, which similar to lycanthropy, she's a victim of her vampirism. You know, she can't resist the urge to go out and kill. Yeah, I was even getting shades of Frankenstein's monster to that degree where you have this creature who sort of was more created, I guess, right? Like, there's a lot of these people who are sort of, like, trying to enhance themselves, but then there are the ones that are, like, you know, birthed by others, you know? Right. And so, like, her Frankenstein is her father, like, literal father, like, actual her actual father is Dracula. So that's a, that's a lot to deal with. <laughs> oh, totally. So by mid-January, Universal had a barely finished script that finally met with Robert Breen's approval. Um, on January 28th, Broadway actress Gloria Holden was announced as the star, and days later it was announced that Marguerite Churchill would replace Jane Wyatt and Otto Kruger would replace Cesar Romero. Wow, the Joker. Yes. Knowing that Cesar Romero would have played the male lead, I have a little bit of difficulty imagining him really playing up those scenes of repartee with Marguerite Churchill. I have trouble imagining that, so maybe it's for the best. Now that I think of it, like, he reminds me a little of Vincent Price, you know? Like, he's sure. sort of got a bit of that same kind of delivery, so maybe a better Sandor, I don't know, than, <laughs> than a Dr. Garth. Production finally got underway on February 4th, just in time to meet their final deadline. Now, with all of the various personnel changes and production setbacks, the final budget was jacked up to $278,000. And as I said, that was Universal's most expensive horror film up until this point. You could make an independent feature nowadays for something around that. And I'm, and I'm pretty sure that the original director, A. Edward Sutherland, was paid somewhere around $17,000 and he didn't direct a single frame. Wild. That's where all the money went. I've heard rumors like that before about like certain actors who were cast and they were signed to deals, but then that character like never got around to showing up in the movie or whatever. Like there's the Marlon Waynes was supposed to be Robin in the Joel Schumacher Batman movies and like ended up getting paid even though he was never in those films. He got money for him. Like wild stuff behind the scenes. I'm sure that happens all the time too, but you know, you have to wonder like why this happened as much as it did during the Great Depression. I mean, it only made things more difficult for Universal. They were struggling already. Because of the Great Depression, you mean the attitudes and the and the anxieties and the stuff like that and like maybe even second guessing and you know, we have to live up to Dracula and like if it's not a hit, this could 
tank the studio like I'm sure these crazy conflated thoughts are going through their heads and like you know people are losing their livelihoods and their money around them right like so they're dealing with the fallout at this point I bet of a lot of the depression era stuff so I always try to like take that into account as well when I'm thinking about these older movies and and stuff like about the movies made during World War II it's like well there's like war on their mind it's a miracle like some of these movies even finished getting made but anyway I digress (laughs) yeah let's get into the movie itself I'll do the credits really quick like I said we've got Lambert Hillier in the director's seat screenplay by Garrett Fort based on a short story which was an excise chapter of Dracula from Bram Stoker we've got Otto Kruger as Jeffrey Garth Gloria Holden as Countess Maria Zaleska, Marguerite Churchill as Janet, uh, Edward Van Sloan returning as Professor Van Helsing, and Gilbert Emery as Sir Basil Humphrey, who is the chief of police at Scotland Yard, Irving Pitchell as Sandor. Now, Irving Pitchell, I don't know him uh, like outside of this, and I learned that he is also well known for his directorial efforts. He was a co-director for The Most Dangerous Game, if you've ever seen that. Oh, yeah, I love that movie. And he's got a pretty lengthy list of directorial credits as well. So he's not just an actor. He directed She in 1935, which I know I have mentioned on this show before. It was made around the same time as The Mummy because it involves a romance that spans centuries, right? And that's when I mentioned uh, She. So he's accomplished director as well. You mentioned the most dangerous game quickly there, and that's closely tied to King Kong. It's the same creative team. It was sort of like almost a dry run in a weird way of like can we even make a movie (laughs) it's got a lot of the same cast i believe one of the two same directors of king kong so interesting how it's all sort of again tying together the monster community i guess (laughs) yeah We've got a list of other sort of background characters, but I do want to point out that E.E. Clive is also in this film. Of course. Gotta mention a fave. Small role, but definitely a favorite of ours here on The Monsters That Made Us. So let's get into the film. Dracula's Daughter opens immediately after the events of Dracula. Uh, We've got Renfield sprawled out on the floor, face down uh, after his fall from the the stairs. After getting choked out and thrown off of the stairs, he uh, supposedly broke his neck. So cool to see the fallout. I just got to say, it's so cool because I'd never seen this movie before and I was not expecting this again. You know, like I knew it from Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein, but like, man, I got so excited when it's like, it's the dead body of Renfield. (laughs) It just happened. Like, it's still warm. (laughs) I wish that they had gotten Dwight Fry. I know. How funny with it. Just to like hold his head up and be like, yup, it's Renfield. All right. Yes. Unfortunately, he's just sort of face down his arms covering, you know, they, they, they got a double for that, but it would have been a really cool moment just to have him in there. Just throw him a bone. So these two police officers who are like part of the comic relief of this film, wander in, find the body and then run into Van Helsing, who has just staked Dracula in the heart and is making no attempt to disguise the fact that he's the guilty party. Straight up confesses right to them before they really even ask what's going on. (laughs) He's like, I'm just coming from 
putting a wooden stake through the heart of a madman. And they're like, wait a minute here. <laughs> I think this this calls for an investigation. <laughs> That's a really interesting scene, though, because we have to address immediately the elephant in the room for the entire film. Where are John and Mina? Right. And it is a glaring omission, but like, I don't know how there couldn't be one minute of them. I guess they, well, you know, they couldn't be there because they have to vouch for Van Helsing, right? Like, you get mixed up in that whole NCIS plot line with Van Helsing, which I love. But like, there could have been at least a thing where it's like, sneak out the back before the cops come. I'll talk to them. Like, I'll take care of everything. And then they're just out of the movie for the whole time. Like, I get you to it but up front i'm like this is strange right and and that becomes more apparent like their absence is really felt in the following scene after they bring van helsing to scotland yard and he's having that conversation with the chief of police there he's retconning the last movie basically writing them out of the film <laughs> yeah yeah kind of i mean they, they don't even get really get mentioned which i thought was strange the police chief is kind of laying this out for him like dude you can't be talking vampires that's nonsense you're gonna go to jail if you can't come up with a logical defense and van helsing's only really real response is like there's only one man who can help me and you would think it might be john harker you would think it might be dr seward right he doesn't mention them at all it's like this new character this psychiatrist that was his student once and we're like huh it's so wild, though. The commissioner, I think, or whatever, and he's like, yeah, it, it just cuts right to the chase because Van Helsing is like, you know, he was a vampire. They're these superstitious creatures, but they're real. And, and the commissioner's like, you're going to be either put to death by, like, hanging or trapped in the loony bin for the rest of your life. He's like, there are no good outcomes if you keep talking like that. Like, it is so cool how grounded they make it immediately. I really appreciated that. I thought that was a lot of fun. It just makes it really clear cut there. And yeah, and, and he's even like, you really got to get a good lawyer. And he's like, he's like, no, 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 screw lawyers. He's like, I'm going to call my psychiatrist friend. <laughs> and I'm like, what's this all about? Is he going to like prove you're sane? Get a lawyer too, at least. Yeah, I, I will say that despite the mental gymnastics we have to do in order to buy that all of these characters from the previous film who would really come in handy here in his defense... You know, it's, it's worth it because of how much this does ground the movie in a reality. You know, I mean, we're, we're, we're kind of retreading old ground a little bit, but I love that it still feels very real and natural because, you know, even with those old characters, it would still be an uphill climb to convince everybody else that this vampire was real. But without them, he's all by himself, right? We feel the isolation and he's got to figure out a way out of this predicament. But the choice to go with a, a psychiatrist and not a, not a lawyer is so strange, but works. This scene here kind of like rewired my brain. Like, I don't really care about John and Mina anymore. I'm way more invested in what happens to Van Helsing. He's my favorite character anyway. I'm more excited that he's back than I am upset that people are missing. It's not like in Frankenstein 2 where it's like his dad and that Victor dude are, are, are out of the picture and you don't even realize. It's like you realize these guys are gone, but then it just like it takes it in another place where it doesn't even matter because if they were here, they'd kind of be dead weight. And I almost end up liking the new characters more. Like I think they work better for this story than if we had uh, the other two guys here with their same old personalities. Yes, these, these new characters, I do love how much more natural they feel. Yeah, these guys are definitely in one of those rom-coms. And it's cool. Like, it actually works. Like, it fits really 
well into this horror movie. They provide actually an, an, inter- an interesting contrast to the original Dracula, because if you remember, the original Dracula is pretty stagey, old-timey, for lack of a better expression. It's not really set in any particular specific time. We kind of got into that. We hear automobiles in the background, so there's some suggestion that this story is taking place you know, after the turn of the century. But this movie feels very modern. And it's because of the characters. It's because they're they're using telephones, sports cars. Yes, but the performances here definitely don't feel like stage characters. They feel like realistic sort of movie characters. I feel like people have just learned to feel more natural on screen at this point too. You know, like I feel like film acting is a thing maybe more by this point, or sound film acting for sound. I guess I don't I'm not really sure how to classify it exactly. You know, but I just feel like yeah, in the last like six years or or whatever, like people just know how to do movie acting as opposed to stage acting, which a bit more of that Dracula 1 sort of felt like. And so Sir Basil's assistant comes in to let him know that the bodies of Dracula and the man Renfield are awaiting them at a nearby police station. And Sir Basil uh, makes arrangements to go take a train and and go get them at 10 o'clock. So now we are at that police station in Whitby and we get a little more of this comedy. I love these two cops. Yeah. This one actor, Billy Bevan, the one with like the big mustache. For a second, I thought that was E.E. Clive because he's kind of playing the E.E. Clive cop character. But no, that's an actor named Billy Bevan who uh, has remarkable comedic chops here. And so he's kind of got the heebie-jeebies. There's two dead bodies in this other room. He's convinced there are uh, rats and and other things going on in there. But he is left in charge of the police station while his his superior goes to meet with the police chief. Yeah, this is a really fun scene. Like, they go right into the comedy here really hard, I guess. Uh, But it doesn't feel forced or anything. I guess it's because it's with the cops like authority right so they don't have to try too hard to make them look like too silly and i think there's a nice balance here like i still like these characters like i don't want them to die you know like they're not inept or anything they're just goofy and you know friendly and happy and that's kind of just like get you a little off kilter because you just expect them to be I guess a little more stern and mean but like right. they're not they're they're just like joking around and this poor guy's left in charge of watching the, the two cadavers Dracula and Renfield and uh, I believe that's when we are introduced to Dracula's daughter that is correct after his superior Hawkins takes off to go meet with the police chief Albert is his name he is left uh, unattended and that is when Countess Zaleska comes in and she makes a a very Dracula-esque entrance. We don't hear any noises. Camera pans over and she's sort of magically there. It's a great, great entrance. She's wearing what appears to be like a burqa almost, you know? She's wearing this long black number with just like the eye window and it, it like really emphasizing the eyes. I mean, vampires, always, like for all of history, you know, the eyes are very important. So I love that visual of just the eyes exposed. So here's the effect that I got from it, which was very strong. Like this is a very striking intro um, so she's she's cloaked in all black from head to toe, like you said, and you can only see her eyes and stuff, and her eyes are super wide open, and we're watching a black and white movie, and it almost looks like it's just a pair of floating eyes, right? Like, it's yeah. almost like this weird Dr. Manhattan thing where it's just, and I just saw a pair of eyes in the hallway looking at me or something, and it was, this was like 
very kind of scary to me. Like it was giving me, you know, like I wasn't like scared, but I'm saying like this is cool. Like right, this is right. giving me goosebumps. Like this would be scary to me in in the 30s and stuff. Just being like, she's just a pair of floating eyes. That's crazy. You know, it's funny that you say that. Have you taken a look at the one sheet for Dracula's daughter with just her eyes? You know, like they knew what they had when they cast her. Those eyes are just piercing. She does her sort of vampire magic and, and hypnotizes our lone police officer here so that she can uh, spirit away the body of her father. So quick question. This might be better left for the, for the next sequence of when she's burning the body, but I guess it pertains to here too because Dracula's dead. Um, mm-hmm. She's here to confirm that it's his body, but she still has like powers and stuff. And I thought the concept was going to be that now that Dracula's dead, she's kind of lost her powers or something, but that's not the case. And that, I think that's really kind of complex in a way, but also interesting. And I just needed to mention that up front because she's here now and, you know, she's going to have powers and stuff and yet she keeps talking about sort of being free of dracula's curse in a way right yeah it's interesting because in so many modern interpretations of of vampire stories when you kill a vampire you sort of immediately cure for lack of a better word every other vampire that that vampire has created right so it's sort of like a chain reaction i mean not every vampire story but that's a very common piece of modern vampire mythology i think the lost boys that works and uh, you know there's plenty of others but I like that that's not in here because it's runs counter to what I would expect from it. It's possible that this idea had not been presented in, in a vampire story yet, whether it be literature or movie or whatever. I like that this is different. You know, just because mm-hmm. Dracula's dead doesn't mean she's off the hook. She probably assumed the same thing we did, right? I mean, she burns his body in the very next scene or in the next, you know, sequence. And she still has those cravings, you know, for for blood. And she still has the the power to hypnotize, you know. And it almost makes her a little more empathetic because, you know, we're expecting that whole cremation to work and it doesn't. So now she's frustrated, you know, like, what else do I have to do? That's interesting. I like that read. That's that's pretty cool. And maybe you're right. Maybe the just that idea, that concept of you know the uh, the cure or, or something. You know, like you kill the head vampire, everyone else reverts. Maybe they just didn't think of that yet in literature or, or what have you. And that's one of my favorite things about like revisiting or checking out these early versions of of things that I really like. You know, because yeah, I was watching the original Godzilla movies with my girlfriend uh, and she had only really watched the modern ones and she's watching the originals and she's like, Oh, this is very different. Like, where's this? Where's that? I'm like, Oh, they didn't get there yet. You know, the first Godzilla is very uh, simplistic and it's in, in, in the way they constructed it, you know? And so, I like that this movie is different, whether the genre had just not evolved to the point that I'm familiar yet or, or whatever the case may be. But yeah, I think that it being different is what makes it stand out and, and kind of exciting because I don't know where it's going to go. And what else is kind of cool too, going back a couple episodes, I forget exactly which character this was for, but you brought up League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Okay, yes. And what that series sort of posits is what happened to Mina after they killed Dracula. She had already been bitten what happens and we sort of get to see that here with uh, Countess Zaleska like she is almost our Mina stand-in from that and that Mina is one that although Dracula has 
is perished, she has vampire power. She has she has kept them. She has retained those those powers, and she is learning to to live with them. She's using them in that move in that series to save the world and and be good and and everything like that. But it's interesting here how we're sort of getting those answers in a bit of a way. Like what would have happened to Mina if she was in this movie? Well, this might have been, we may have been dealing with a Mina with the same sort of cravings. You know what I'm saying? The same sort of attitude, the same motivation. I like that read a lot. I hadn't considered that Zaleska could be our stand-in for Mina, but it totally works. You know, maybe under a modern lens, it works better than it would have in 1936, you know? But yeah, right on. So she hypnotizes our lonely police officer and makes off with, with Dracula's coffin. Now, Hawkins returns with Sir Basil Humphrey, and Albert is just sort of sitting up straight, looking straight ahead, like he's in a trance. And we have a, a sort of a funny moment where, uh, you know, his, he falls over and, and suddenly the, the, the body's gone. Then we cut to Zaleska out in what looks like a swamp or a field, and she is cremating the body of Dracula. Yeah, it feels like witchcraft almost right being depicted with like the whole the huge bonfire she seems to be chanting some kind of spell or incantation or something like that this is like the first scene where i feel like atmosphere was really used i mean you could definitely make that case in carfax abbey you know with the the old castle aesthetic but here we're like out in nature with fog like almost like werewolf fog there's fire moss you know it just this starts to really feel like a horror movie now agreed agreed i love it i love it and we also get uh, we have that sandor dude lurking around her like i thought he was a monkey man at one point <laughs> but <laughs> just like this weird manservant like it's basically her slave like she calls him mistress she orders him around she's with other men in front of him like that's that's her pet man right there yeah, but I love that he's so different from Renfield, you know? I mean, he's serving the same purpose in that he's, like, the mortal who will do her bidding. But he's not a lunatic. He's actually quite lucid. He's, like, got an intimidating presence because of how tall he is. There's a moment where he says, like, you promised to turn me, you know? So he's sort of, like, waiting in line for his. Like, that's a great thing. Like, that comes up a lot in modern horror and stuff. And I even think of, you know, um, what they do in the shadows and stuff. Like, you know, you promised if I was your familiar, you would turn me by now. And it's like, well, this guy jumped the line. And it's like, what? And it's like, that happens (laughs) here. She falls for this other dude and he sort of gets put on the back burner and that becomes complicated. (laughs) Right. After the cremation of Dracula's body, they uh, head back to where she is staying. She's got like a like a an apartment over a bookstore with like a studio and um And she's convinced in this moment that she is back to normal. You know, she is mortal again and very excited about that. She's playing the piano and Sandor is having none of it. Uh, And maybe it's because he really is looking forward to being turned into a vampire himself, but he is not willing to let her believe that everything is okay. I like how they introduced that she's like this artist, she's a painter, uh, she lives in Chelsea, like in a loft and all this kind of stuff. Like, that's very interesting. That's, you know, that's cool. I like how Sandor, like, knows her better than, you know, she. she's sort of like in denial maybe, but like he is not, he knows, right, like he's like, nothing's changed yet. You know, that didn't really do much. And I, I want to know, I want to know what makes him the authority on, on this. I could see her, you know, having never been changed back to a mortal from a vampire 
and you know maybe not feeling anything physically maybe you just don't feel anything right but she burned dracula so she's got to be fine you know and she's just riding high on that those positive vibes and then he comes in like a wet blanket and, and he's like no you i only see death in your eyes i know what a buzzkill it's like i thought you wanted to <laughs> stick around like like she's happy finally right she's like finally there's like a reason to live and like go on and like i'm free i can be myself now and i don't have to worry about my father dracula like over my shoulder or whatever like over me this whole time and he like looks at her and and it's almost like he's embodying dracula he's like no like you're still part of the family like it's still even though you've changed your name or whatever like you still got dracula's blood running through you and it's like, it's like oh man you can't even give her like one night <laughs> Right, and so she falls for it too. She, like hook, line, and sinker, she's back to kind of her original sad self. And so unable to resist her primal urges, she heads back out on the street in the same sort of black gown thing that we saw her in originally. And I'm pretty sure this scene here, she's uh, stalking her prey, right? A, a mm-hmm. man walks through this alleyway and, and she's going to pursue him. But in this alleyway where, or this like stairwell where she's just kind of hanging out, watching and waiting, I'm pretty sure it's the same set from Werewolf of London. I could be wrong about that, but it looks like it is the exact same alley way when he's kind of lurking the first time you see him out and it's foggy and he's like got the hat over his eyes and the collar up like I'm almost positive and I mean it would make sense that Universal just shot this on that same exact set you know just to save money but uh, take another look at that when you get a chance I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's the same that's cool too and I mean it's the same scene pretty much like it's cool how it's just like a reverse though like instead of the Dracula stalking the woman it's it's the Dracula's daughter stalking the man it was kind of funny too to see the I guess epitome of what like the good looking dandy or so I don't know exactly what to call him at the time but the gentleman that yeah. she's stalking like he you know like I, I definitely was like alright this guy is like one of those like a gold digger guy right like that's what he sort of struck me as immediately where it's like he's he's gonna go try and like get like some money out of some wealthy woman or something like that and get written into her will so like I didn't feel too bad about him getting stalked by Dracula's daughter <laughs> <laughs> I was just trying to come up with like a more moral implication for why he should get attacked, I guess. <laughs> I think there was something to John Balderston's theory that if it was a, a female vampire stalking male prey, audiences would have less of an issue with that. And I think that's true. Or, or maybe it's because she's more sympathetic than Dracula is as a character. I find that I am rooting for Zaleska because I want her to be happy and I want her to find a cure for her, her vampirism. And so the, the collateral damage in this film doesn't strike me as horrifying in the way that it does in Dracula where he's preying on innocent women. So I don't know. I think it's a psychological thing, you know? it's The movie is, is actively playing it that way. It's just, as an audience member, I don't care as much about the male victims as I did for the female victims. And originally, you know, that's just the way it works. I hear you. And I wonder if that's saying something as to why one of the main characters in this movie is a psychiatrist, you know, instead of a lawyer, that they did bring the shrink in. And they were like, we are going to actually talk about the psychology of all of this that's 
been going on at Universal Studios for the past few years. Like, let's actually lay it out on the table at some point as best we can under the Hays Code. And that sort of feels like what this movie is in a way. Like, it is more of like a psychological thriller or something. And like, this isn't a great comparison, but I was thinking of stuff like Marnie or something or I don't know, you know? Yeah, like it feels almost like Hitchcock 2 on that tip as well. So whatever they're doing, it's working better than I was I was expecting. For sure. The next scene is a very short scene in a, in a hospital sort of like surgery room where we get kind of the report that the man is dead and he's got two little holes in his neck. The same sort of stuff we are familiar with from the original Dracula. But then following that, we meet, finally meet our hero, Dr. Jeffrey Garth. He's in Scotland on a hunting trip, which uh, is one of those like old school hunting trips where like a group of guys would go out in their Sunday best with their shotguns and their dogs. It's a duck hunt, but like it looks, they've got the, it looks like a fox hunt with the dogs and the horses and everything, but like this is the Nintendo game duck hunt. Like that's what they're up to. <laughs> and I just quickly got to say, like, Otto Kruger, I love, I like you in this role a lot, but you have no clue how to handle a gun because <laughs> you have the barrel up against your chin. You're leaning over it like a cane. Like you were going to blow your freaking head off, dude. And as soon as he hands it off to the guy standing next to him, that dude like aims it directly towards the ground. <laughs> it's just, I'm sorry but it just bugged me the whole sequence. And I know it's not the character, but it's the actor, but in trying to separate the two. Yeah, it's it reminds me um, when I was doing theater, you know, in, in high school and in college, whenever we were handed a prop weapon, we were always told, treat it as if it's a real weapon. And uh, it's like he didn't get that note. No, he's waving uh. it all over the freaking place. Like he's putting it right in Janet's face. Like it is crazy. I was watching it yelling at the screen. <laughs> But yeah, so we meet Jeffrey Garth, played by Otto Kruger, and Marguerite Churchill as Janet. And we kind of get our first experience with their sort of, their playfully antagonistic dynamic. So, like, this stuff is definitely, like, ripped right out of, like, Cary Grant films and, and those types of romantic comedies. And, and I love it. Like, these two play like they hate each other, but they, they're totally in love, you know? Like, they just can't stand each other. And I really like what's going to become sort of one of the, maybe we have a love square in this instead of a triangle, you know, because we have the Sandor guy as well. But what I find interesting is sort of, like, as well as with Frankenstein a little bit, there's like a love triangle when one of the people is one of the creatures. Like in a weird way, Frankenstein was like, you had Frankenstein, his wife, and then Frankenstein's monster, right? So like it was the three of them sort of working out the affections for each other and like who did Frankenstein, you know, care yeah. about the most and all that. And we sort of have that here too, where we have Jeffrey and Janet who, you know, clearly have like something going on, but then you have like Zaleska comes in the door and, and like causes all these, you have sort of the monster is the, the third again and I don't know if that like is fully fleshed out or if that's just me reaching or whatever but like I kind of latched on to that where it's kind of cool how part of the love triangle is the monsters in there like the creature of the movie is like one of the things in the love triangle yeah definitely I will buy your love square theory for sure here you know I think we, we haven't we haven't really had a fourth character yet that is as intelligent and whatnot as Sandor is you know so this is like the first time where we've had that fourth person involved but yeah it's, it's interesting to think about them as like love triangles because even if they're not like necessarily romantically you know involved there is a um an intimacy 
to those relationships. Yeah, that is a very interesting idea. And I hadn't really thought about it quite so much until just now, but that's definitely worth exploring, I think. Okay, so I wanted to say something about Jeffrey Garth here. You know, you, you compare him to um, like Cary Grant, you know, like His Girl Friday, kind of uh, that sort of dynamic. Uh, and I agree with you to a point. There are moments in this movie where I find Garth is kind of mean. Yeah, he's no Cary Grant. No. They're doing the bit, but he's not that charming or he doesn't have the charisma. Let's just say that. Right. There are bits in this movie where I'm like, you're being a dick. You know, like I get that you guys are into each other and there's like a playfulness there, but I felt like for, I feel like for a lot of it, Janet is really the one who's being playful and he's just annoyed. Maybe it's his performance or maybe it's the material. I'm not totally sure, but I know what they're going for. So I kind of overlook those moments that feel unnecessarily harsh, you know? Yeah. To that end, Janet feels a bit too immature at times. Like, as much as I love her crank calls and her pranks and things like that, it feels like they're a little too into their stereotype, I guess. Like, he is the sort of curmudgeon and she is the more playful one and everything. But I think, like, it's cool because, like, he is sort of, a, he is attracted to her, but then you get you know, Dracula's daughter shows up and it's these women are like the complete opposite of each other. The way they carry themselves, the things on their mind, the stuff they're concerned with. Later on, Dracula's daughter's like, we need to talk. And Janet's like, we got nothing to talk about. And she's like, we have Jeffrey to talk about. It's like, oh, <laughs> snap. Like, they do have to talk about him. Yeah. It, it's working way better than previous relationship problems that we've, I think they're better integrated into the story than we've had before i mean james wales recognized that he's like we don't need this you yeah. know and if we if we do it we have to really do it and it's we're not gonna so like he kind of excised a lot of that from his stuff and uh, now that it's back i'm glad that they've sort of worked on it a bit right right yeah i mean this movie does not pass the bechdel test unfortunately but i was glad to see that those two characters did have a scene together where they get to interact because they are so different and 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 they're pulling our hero in two different directions so I was happy to see them get a scene together. So she uh, shows up right before the hunt to pull him away. Uh, he's been called back to London. His old teacher, Professor Van Helsing, needs help. How's he going to argue with that? So he gets in the car and heads back to London and meets with Van Helsing. And Van Helsing is still, like, he's still arguing the same points. And, and, and Garth is telling him the same thing everybody else is telling him. Like, you're not going to win this case by talking that way. Here's the problem, Dan. It's that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic like that is where <laughs> van helsing is coming from he's arthur c clark like yes. 30 years too early people are just cannot wrap their mind around the concept of like technology or magic advancing whatever that's the scene this is a cool scene though it's like he's like it's magic and superstition he's like no it's science you just don't understand it <laughs> i thought it was cool yeah, and I, and I love that he's arguing a psychiatrist. And that could be, in at least in part, why John Harker and, and Mina Harker and, and Dr. Seward are gone, because we, we still need a character who's going to, you know, approach this stuff from a similar place as Van Helsing, right? Somebody he can talk shop with, right? And yeah, I just love that Van Helsing is, is pulling that card, you know, that the magic is just science that we haven't discovered yet. And Garth, in his, in his arrogance, is like, he claims to be super open-minded, like, I'm just as open-minded as I ever was, I think he says. You know, but he's not unsympathetic, you know, he, he sees that his, his friend is in trouble and, uh, and agrees to help him as best he can with how he knows how to do it. You know, he's not quite willing to jump off that ledge and start believing in vampires, but I don't get the sense that he believes Van Helsing is crazy. 
Yeah, and there's only one thing keeping Van Helsing like out of a jail cell, and that is that Dracula's body is missing. You can't pin a murder on a dude if there's no body. So <laughs> he got really lucky. I thought that was a really smart sort of matter of convenience that like the story dictated. Dracula's daughter wants to make sure the body's destroyed, so clearly she needs to get it somehow, and like without a body, you can't prove that Van Helsing did it. So he's in this weird sort of gray zone right now where it's like they're looking for the body. They think maybe Dracula might even still be alive because this dude was found in the hospital with the neck bite and everything. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There's a lot of stuff sort of being like theories up in the air right now within the movie, which is a lot of fun. Yeah, but I, I love that we as the audience, as Van Helsing is going from like conversation to conversation, trying to convince somebody to believe him, like we know it's true. Like we've lived through it already once before. So I, I, I love that now this movie has to do something a little bit different, as we'll see as Garth starts to go down this path, you know, he, he starts to learn that all of the things that Van Helsing is saying are true. And he and he makes the deduction himself by the end. Whereas uh, previously in the first Dracula, nobody else really takes it seriously until the very end when Dracula kidnaps Mina. We get almost a detective story here, which I kind of like. Yeah, and I was thinking about that too in the, in the scene that's coming up where we get like the socialite party, which I just got to say like, these guys party a lot in the Dracula universe. <laughs> Like, they're always throwing social events and stuff. But, like, the main gossip is about the killing. They're like, have you heard that Van Helsing murdered that fine Count Dracula who just got to town? Like, they don't have any suspicion. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, no one, aside from our core characters in the last movie, had any knowledge that Dracula had nefarious doings or goings on or was a vampire. They just thought he was this new, rich socialite, and suddenly he got murdered. Right. It's like this hot goss. It's like hot <laughs> gossip. It's crazy. Yeah, there is a remarkable amount of high society dinner party bullshit in these movies. And it's not just Dracula, because we saw it in Werewolf of London. We've seen it in the Frankenstein movies. Why so much of these stories take place in sort of that richer upper crust of society i don't know i mean it does suit this story it's not like it feels out of place here because you know dracula was a count he would have gone to like uh, rich parties and a countess certainly would but i think it's just funny how how so much of these movies are just mingling with the, all the rich folks frankenstein himself being a baron as well Right, Frankenstein being a baron, like, he could have just been a doctor. Doctors make enough money back then that he could have had, like, the wealth and afford it. You know, that's another yeah. thing, right? Like, if you're a doctor, you're, you're, like, a lot of these guys are scientists, and so they're already getting pretty well paid for their vocation, I guess. Like, it would be cool, though, you're right, if, like, there was a situation where some guy, some delivery man, wandered into the Invisible Man's lab, and it all, like, accidentally spilled on him. They're coming, but I'm, like, waiting for the movie where this happens to, like, an average Joe. Yeah, if this movie movie when when dracula's daughter bites the man in the street if it then is just his movie for the rest of the movie and like right. we dropped everything else that kind of situation maybe yeah they're definitely in there we're just not there yet it's just lots of tuxedos and martinis and whatnot for a little while it is the depression maybe there's some kind of element where they're like they want to see rich people get terrorized and and horror, horror stuff happen to those people while they're watching stuff on screen and there's some that, that's a fair point too you know, maybe not 
necessarily to see them terrorized, but to see life in a way, like almost as an escape, to see the life as it doesn't currently exist for them. It's very different today. Today we see movies about how shitty everything is, like in real time. Whereas here, I think the movies were where you went to forget about life, your problems. And so you could you could watch these rich people, you know, live and party and fight vampires. So, I mean, it's a combination of things for sure. So in this party, we learn a couple things. We learn that Zaleska is an artist, as we see her painting on the wall. Dr. Garth is just sort of schmoozing with these people. It's not totally clear what his relationship is with them. The first of two things happens in this scene, and I'm not quite sure how I feel about it, because they are direct callbacks to the, the previous Dracula. As they're discussing the murders, there's a very similar moment, like when, when Dracula was introduced in that drawing room in Dracula, like, like who could have done this? Count Dracula. There's a very similar moment in here where somebody poses a similar question and uh, the butler announces Countess Zaleska. I kind of like it. Like, I get it. I, I laughed a little bit, but also it's so on the nose that it's entirely unnecessary. Yeah, it's way clunky. Maybe if we hadn't seen it, wasn't it also like in The Mummy? It, there's a similar moment, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And and this one, it's like, oh, what a strange painting. Who had done it? And then and, and it's like presenting Countess Zaleska and she like walks into the room and I'm like oh it's the line name gag now it's so quick but I was like oh that that didn't feel great as she enters somebody I think the um the main woman I guess the host of the party offers her some sherry and she says no I never drink wine well she like really lets that one sit for she's like oh I never drink wine yeah those moments aside i think the scene plays out pretty well uh zaleska is now introduced to our hero jeffrey garth and janet as they continue to talk about the dracula case she starts to humor them in that conversation about the belief in vampires, right? And reading the room, I guess, seeing how people feel about it. This scene felt like um, one of those moments, like not necessarily like an exposition dump thing, but like a let's reestablish where we are right now. Like we've got all of our players meeting each other. Like let's sort of go over all the information everybody knows. Like what's what are we talking about here? Okay, like everybody's in the same room that's going to be in the movie pretty much from now on. And we're discussing what the rest of the movie is going to be about. It was the way like I kind of saw yeah. it and like we're setting up all the dynamics and I think it works really well. You have Countess Zaleska and Janet and so like there's a real contrast between those two. You just feel like the weight of the room really well, I, I take it. And this is also where she's like, oh, Dr. Garth, you're a psychiatrist. Like I could really use your help with my obsession, like trying to release... Right, because he starts talking about, or somebody asks him about Van Helsing, like his relationship with Van Helsing. And as he begins discussing that, he talks about, you know, the psychological process of sort of relieving people of their obsessions. And, or releasing them is the is the term he uses, and that sticks in Zaleska's mind. You know, she's because she's looking for release, and maybe this is the man who can help. So yeah, this is where we finally set up kind of that relationship, and it's going to drive this movie. Which I didn't expect this movie to go in that direction, and I liked is that she kind of hires him to help her do what she thought killing Dracula and like burning his body would do, which is like 
help her not have these constant cravings or at least be able to like understand them or maybe even control them or something. And and he might have some like questionable techniques later on. I'm not quite sure of his uh, methods, perhaps. Maybe they're a little outdated. I don't know if people still do stuff like that, but I guess like, you know, it's worth a try. It's better than nothing. You know, she's at the end of a rope too, it seems as well. Like burning and killing Dracula was supposed to do the job. Uh, so this is like, a very kind of like unexpected thing where it's like oh my god this guy could actually help me and i thought that was very interesting where it's like the monster is aware it's a monster and doesn't want to be a monster something like that maybe or i don't know exactly what i'm getting at but i like the kind of complexity of it oh definitely after the party, Garth has sort of agreed he's he'll you know see how he can help Countess Aleska. And uh, the very next scene we have it's a scene between Garth and Janet. I'm not entirely sure how much time has passed between the party and this scene. It might be the next night. It's not totally clear, but we get a little bit of that sort of jealousy, right? Like they're sort of setting up kind of a love triangle to a degree, where where Janet's like, you know, you were the only person in the room she was interested in. And this is also the very adorable bow tie scene if you yes. remember right I love that idea of like the entire scene that they're doing their dialogue they're taking turns trying to tie his bow tie yes which will come back again later in a pretty <laughs> funny uh, sequence but yeah so we get more of that sort of relationship this is one of those scenes where I think he's a little more mean than he needs to be but I love that she kind of gets back at him by the tying his tie all funky uh, and then leaving this is also the scene where I first really noticed the music um which we didn't really talk too much about. During this scene, I guess I noticed it because I didn't really like it, but then it comes back again, and I was like, oh, well, at least they, at least it's like a familiar thing. Like, they treated it as their love theme, almost, you know? It's like right. the music that plays when the two of them are doing their flirty thing. Yeah, so while I didn't exactly love it, like, I really appreciated the concept of it, I guess. I usually try to pay attention to movie scores. This score does, just doesn't stand out to me. You know, I, I kind of forget that it's there, so I'm glad you picked up on it. I just didn't really notice it, unfortunately. Okay, so the next scene is between Zaleska and Garth, and this is where their relationship really starts in earnest. We notice different things that Garth doesn't pick up on. Well, he notices, but like doesn't really put it together that her apartment has no mirrors in them. Yeah, that's really gonna come to his attention when Van Helsing like mentions that later as one of the telltale signs. Like if he had just read Van Helsing's book, maybe he would this movie would have been over in a half hour, but it would have been pretty funny. <laughs> the scene we also have the prank calls you referred to, we get more Garth and Janet, and it does start to feel a little too much Garth and Janet. Like we just had a mm -hmm. scene of that and now like the scene is supposed to be setting up kind of the, the Garth and, and Zaleska relationship. Janet barrels in and uh, disrupts the flow. But I mean, she kind of has to, to throw him off for the next phone call he gets. I think the, the scene overall, it's a little clunky, but it accomplishes what they need it to, I suppose. Yeah, I think it would have maybe been a little easier to concentrate for myself. Like, it would have been a little less confusing about what the scene's really about if we didn't have the phone gag running throughout the whole scene, because it does kind of throw me off a little bit. Like, once is like, oh, okay, she is kind of like worried about him and stuff, but then it, it's actually, no, that was just to set up the joke that he's yelling at the person who's really calling that yeah. he thinks is Janet, and sort of like gets in trouble for two seconds about that. It doesn't even really matter. Uh, I think it like briefly comes up again. I would have been fine without that. I do like she does do a good impression. I'm a killer for good impressions. <laughs> so that was funny. It is funny, but I think this scene is more important than that. You know what I mean? I wish yeah. this scene was sort of not broken up 
buy that because this is like the meat and the potatoes like we're getting to right here where he's talking about the method that he wants her to do the whole like you have to face your problem head on instead of run from it you know oh like he, he gives alcoholics like he puts them in a room with a drink and makes them just sit there which sounds horrible <laughs> and you know what i've heard too is like kids who get caught smoking cigarettes are forced to smoke entire packs it's not yeah. quite the same thing it's like the reverse of that but like these don't sound very sound to me as methods of rehabilitation or, or whatever you're going to call it and everything. I, I guess I expected his practice to be a little different than that. These these methods certainly wouldn't hold water. Uh, they might have been modern for the time. though. That's a good point. That's what I think I was trying to get to is like this might have just been all of the psychiatry like available to them like at the right. time. Like this probably was out of a textbook kind of situation. And, you know, I doubt they sat down in a room with a real one for more than five minutes. If he's intended to be taken seriously as this extremely credible psychiatrist, I have to imagine that these practices would have made sense at the time. You know, because otherwise he looks like an idiot and that, that that just wouldn't work. It's a cool scene in that he like basically takes the job. Yeah. He's called away at that moment because of something else. But like he is like giving her advice and is like, yes, we will we will try and like cure you. Right. And she doesn't actually reveal all of the information either. Before we move on, I just wanted to sort of discuss that scene. She sort of talks about how she is being influenced by the dead you know something that has died still has this grasp on her and she just can't seem to shake it she's alluding to something supernatural but without saying explicitly what it is you know she's not showing all of her cards yet and that will become a a talking point later but i found it interesting how much she did reveal about herself in this scene and of course garth having no belief in vampires or that sort of supernatural thing kind of like, treats it like alcoholism or some other substance abuse or, or, you know, any other obsession. What's interesting about that whole moment, too, about, you know, can death influence your life is kind of what she's getting at. Like, can someone who's died still have, like, this hold over you? And it's being presented supernaturally. Like, she's literally saying, can, like, the ghost of Dracula be controlling me from beyond the grave? But I read it more as, like, she just buried her father. And it's like, whether you knew him or loved him or not or whatever, like, you're grieving. And I think that's what they're trying to get through, like, as writers is using this moment to sort of get to, to the psychological damage of like losing a parent or burying a loved one and, and dealing and I think that's a big thing like losing a loved one and their influence like still being there or even stronger once they're gone or something like that. I, I get more of an abuser sort of vibe, you know, because she's trying to shake this feeling. It's not like, you know, when you lose a loved one, grief takes all kinds of forms and it can last a long time. Yes, you want to move on from it, but the way she characterizes this hold that this dead person has over her, it's almost like a revolting to her, right? She doesn't want this vampirism inside of her anymore. It's almost comparable to an abuser dying, but you know them still having that influence over you even after they're long gone, which is dark. <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, because especially if it's your father or like a family member or something, you know, I mean, it's it's terrible anyway or, other, or another, but it just feels like there's an extra sort of layer to that as well. And when an abuser is gone and out of your life, you know, you, I mean, I can't speak from experience on that kind of thing, but from what I've gathered and read and seen and you can still not believe it you could still be in denial right like you still carry those scars with you you know yeah yeah like you're so 
so used to not trusting that like even if the person is gone like you may still not your body may still not believe it even if you think you do kind of situation and like that could go for a lot of things as well very traumatic situations do that to a person where it's like your body remembers even if you even if you don't you know and you will have like traumatic scarring even if you don't realize it yeah for sure and i I think she plays it really well that way and i think i mean maybe that could be why dr garth doesn't really think much of it it's probably how he's hearing it it's kind of be hard for him too because like he's dealing with all this other stuff going you know what i mean like his mind's in two places and everything and i'm not trying to like empathize with him too much he's already got enough to back him up as the hero in this movie and everything i'm not saying he's like you know worn thin or anything like that but like his head doesn't really seem to be in the game with her you know what i'm saying like it would be a lot better if it wasn't in the middle of a murder investigation and we could like come to my office he even says like can you please come to my office in the morning and she's like i just cannot do that like she can't come out and say you know the sun's gonna to turn me to ash but like that's what he's sort of he's like i really can't this is not the best time which is very unfortunate but is good writing right because he doesn't really see it as this emergency situation that it is they decide they're going to reconvene the following night and because of that sandor goes out in search of the next victim and then this is this is maybe the sequence that is the reason a lot of people will talk about this movie you sort of alluded to it earlier um he goes out on the street and finds uh this young woman lily who seems homeless and hungry you know just looking for a place to keep warm and grab a bite to eat this one though they make it perfectly clear and i think they did it for me she is not a prostitute that's correct um, yep she even flat out says to him i won't do that you know that's yeah. if that's what you want you can forget it yes they do they do sort of suggest maybe she is but she shuts that down immediately which i do like i like that it's very clear that she's she's an innocent Sandra takes her up to the studio under the guise of being a model, right? Because Zaleska is a, a painter, she's an artist, and she needs a model to paint. And so they offer her food and drink and uh, warmth in exchange. And this is where maybe the most risque thing that we have seen in one of these movies up to this point. Correct me if I'm wrong. Lily is prepping to pose and, and Zaleska tells her, you know, she's she's trying to focus on like from the shoulders up. So Lily drops the straps on her top, sort of exposing her bare shoulders and her bare back at one point. And at that point, Zaleska seduces her in front of the fireplace. I really love this sequence for a lot of reasons. One of the things that really stuck out to me right away is that Lily is sort of conscious of what is happening as it happens which is unlike other vampire seductions that we've seen before. I thought that was interesting because she's screaming and crying. No, I don't want to do this. And Yeah, there's a lot of interesting stuff happening here. I think also having Sandor in the room is telling, right? Mm-hmm. Like this mm-hmm. guy, I think the Italians had a word for it called cuckold. Like that's this guy. Yeah. He's representing that throughout the whole movie. And it won't, you know, and not just with Dr. Garth, but with Lily as well. Like he is just never going to be intimate with Dracula's daughter. It's just not in the cards for him. And I think at the end, I might push him over the edge towards the end. But yeah, this scene is very open. It's like the way I was thinking of it is like as sort of suggestive as they need to be. I'm surprised how much they were able to sort of be clear about because I don't Mm. think there's any sort of mis telling here Draco's daughter is trying to fight a craving she has been told to put yourself in the room with that which is the most desirable for you and try and resist that yes 
she goes and she doesn't get a guy, you know, like she gets a woman and she's studying women and all this stuff. And I just think that that is very telling. And I thought that was really well done, you know, and I was I had heard about this scene. And I, you know, like you say, it sort of gives the reputation for the future of maybe lesbians not being seen in the best light in film history right they are always sort of going to be referred to in a way as vampires you know Mm -hmm. i don't think that this scene is what you know deservedly gives it that meaning or connotation like this scene plays out to be very tasteful in my opinion and i think at the time very risque yes but also sensitive right like it's telling you exactly what it is as it's going along and like while technically yes i guess you could say by the end of the scene she rapes her sure it's definitely a violation that's for sure and they are not shying away from it you know it's like you said she's lily the character is saying no 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 and they pan away and it's it's as much and they're going as far as they can and even further than i was expecting them to with this scene yeah and i think it's interesting that this particular scene gets talked about so much for being a um, woman on woman vampire scene well it's been it was implied at least in the first dracula that dracula did the same thing to renfield dracula has always kind of been presented as a a sort of bisexual entity but i mean we of course he's mostly preying on on women but it's, it's been established that he also preys on men as well but no one really talks about that the way this scene gets talked about you know for some reason it's it's different for people when it's two women as opposed to when it's two men Maybe it's because with women in film, again, I want to be careful here because I'm a white straight man, but it's inherently more risque because of the, the whole male gaze aspect, right? I agree with you that this scene is played pretty tastefully. I love this scene. And it's actually maybe the, uh, the most horrifying like of the vampire seduction sequences in this film of all the victims this is the one that i really i'm afraid for her i don't like i said i didn't care really care about the guy before and by the next one it's it's pretty much the movie's pretty much over but this is the most effective scare in my opinion in like the whole movie in terms of zaleska preying on another person yeah and i do think it is a it is ultimately a scary sequence because it ramps up and it's very tense and uncomfortable as well. And the Lily character sort of has a very dark fate. Uh, She is not immediately going to die from this and is going to have to recall the trauma before dying of shock. You know, maybe the same reasons why whoever thought that the audience would sort of accept a female killer easier than a male killer this time around is the same reason they sort of take umbrage with that scene, right? Like Mm -hmm. are having trouble with same-sex women, whereas it was okay with men. Man on man is maybe okay, but like woman on woman is not in a way that, oh, it's okay to see a woman kill more than it is to see a man kill. Like there's just very strange sort of cinematic ethics being thrown around by ratings boards, producers, suits, everybody with their opinions and stuff that it's it's almost a miracle every print of this wasn't burned during the McCarthy era or something like that you know like like I think of that sometimes whereas like we are censoring our own stuff in this country at one point that they didn't just throw this on the pile with disco or something I don't know we talked briefly at times about James Whale you know and the and Universal Studios seemingly being very open to sort of um, exploring sexuality within their movies through the role of the other and we are here again for sure in full effect like I could see 
see why they might have wanted James Whale to tackle this. You know, I think he would have had a lot of insight into this material. Maybe he didn't tackle it because there's more wrong than right in his eyes. Mm -hmm. I don't know. But he did do stuff like this with his own stuff. You know, we talked about Bride of Frankenstein, where the monster and the blind man, two men sort of feel like they're two men living together, sharing a meal, uh, all that kind of situation and stuff. So it seems like something universal was not shying away from, you know, like trying to maybe sneak in there subversively at times. You know, it all sort of like comes to light after seeing this movie, looking into the movies we already watched and seeing sort of situations like this were there in ways. Yeah, definitely. Okay, let's move on. As you said, Lily is not dead. The very next sequence, she arrives at the hospital and we find out that she had been sort of walking the streets, babbling, kind of like a lunatic, one can assume, similar to Renfield, but though maybe not quite as hysterical. We cut to Garth arriving back home, pissed because of Janet screwing with him. Or they have like sort of their like um, bickering, but this this feels a lot more real, you know, because he's legitimately annoyed and, and she's, I think, kind of had enough of that. So she resigns. Just as she is about to, to head out, Garth finds out that about Lily, you know, having been picked up off the street and uh, his, his uh, presence is required at the hospital to check on her. I love the end of that scene because she's like basically handing in her letter of resignation and he's basically like, you're fired for what you did. And she's like, you can't fire me. I quit. And then they get the call about Lily and he's like, come on, we're going to the hospital. She's like, what are you talking about? He's like, you're my assistant. What do you mean? What am I talking about? That You know, it's so weird. It's like, you're not actually fired. You're not really going to quit. Like they're just squabbling. It feels real until like they pull it back at the last second. Because like, he has every reason to be pissed off, and, and uh, she has every reason to want to quit, certainly. But it's just like, I thought you fired me. Well, you're rehired. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> where am I going to find another secretary this hour of the night? So this is where we find out that uh, Lily has lost a lot of blood. She's got amnesia, possibly, and she has lapsed into unconsciousness. So now it's up to Dr. Garth to, to sort of diagnose her. And of course, Garth discovers the two bite marks on her neck. So the plot starts to thicken a little bit. The following scene after that, Garth is in sort of a meeting with Van Helsing and Sir Basil Humphrey, chief of police. And suddenly things start to, to make sense. Like Van Helsing's theory that there's a vampire on the loose. Like at this point, I think they still kind of suspect Dracula might still be alive. But suddenly like the, with the bite marks and the, um, the loss of blood and, and, and all of these symptoms that Van Helsing had been talking about, they're starting to materialize in front of them. And I love that moment where, where Sir Basil is like, now you've got me talking this nonsense. You know, it's... Yeah, too much proof, irrefutable proof is starting to, to shed its lights on the case of Van Helsing. Which, you know, they're never going to find the body anyway, so he'll never actually end up going to jail, but they'll clear his name anyway. <laughs> Van Helsing finds out about Lily and suggests to Garth, you know, find out where she was attacked and you'll find your vampire. Yeah, and they used the hypnosis machine on her. That's right. And so they use that wacky kind of spinning wheel with the uh, mirrors and lights to, to extract that information, right? Yeah, it's like the thing charlatans used to sell like in the 30s to doctors and things. <laughs> like, you know, like this will help put your client to sleep instead of anesthesia or whatever. Just hypnotize them and they won't feel a thing. <laughs> like, that's how it, I don't know if that's true. That's how, It also comes across a little like a Voight-Kampf test as well. Like, yeah. There's yeah, some yeah. weird pseudoscience going on with this thing. But uh, before we get there, uh, 
Garth and Janet are on their way to like another party. We have another like a, like a callback to the the bow tie where he tries to get his maid to tie his tie and she just can't get it. So Janet has to step in and tie his tie for him. Janet leaves without him and before Garth can uh, make his way out the door, Zaleska shows up and this is where she runs into Janet on her way out and they have that exchange where Zaleska is looking for Dr. Garth and Janet says he's out and very quickly like within the next breath the I think the as the maid gives him away and Zaleska says why did you find it necessary to lie and I, I love that line reading I love that whole moment like that is so great where she just lie like gets caught in that lie immediately mm-hmm it also reminds me of that moment in Ed Wood. I don't remember what movie they're recreating at the time, but like he promised his girlfriend a role and gave it to someone else, like one of the backers, and and they meet on camera. I don't remember what the line was exactly, but like it's very tense sort of moment on screen for the sort of rivals to be meeting. Yeah, 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 totally. Like it sort of sows that seed for like, okay, this is the woman who's going to get me what I want, you know, or I'm, she's going to be my pawn in this game later on. Although Zaleska is probably not contemplating that just yet. She's still uh, hoping that Dr. Garth can save her from this obsession. This is where I think Garth starts to suspect there's more to Zaleska than she is letting on. He introduces her to this, to this hypnotism machine and she wants no part of that. She reveals to him that She's going to be leaving London and needs his help, like, right away. Timing is horrible. <laughs> She's like, run away with me. She's like, don't just be my doctor. Like, let's be together is what it's starting to feel like. Like, it also feels like if maybe she can convince herself that she's in love with this guy, like, she can forget about, like, all of her other urges and, and, like, true feelings, maybe. Like, that's how it's coming across to me, where she's like, this guy, he's got the, the science, the tools, you know? So, like, maybe I could be happy with him. Like, he'll just have to tell me, like, <laughs> all these different methods and how to how to treat me for the rest of our lives. But the issue here is that two nights in a row she has killed. And every time she tries to get like legitimate help from Dr. Garth, he's got somewhere to be. He's got other things to tend to. He's just not taking her problem seriously enough for her. Like he does not realize yet that every day time is of the essence. He's got hours before she's going to give into these impulses and he's just not paying attention. I mean, it's really tough because, like, one would be thinking, just tell me what's wrong, you know? Like, you always get that, right? It's just like, what's wrong? Tell me what's wrong. What's bothering you? And he wants to be, like, to Zaleska, like, what's wrong? Like, tell me what's really going on. But you can't, like, a person can't just come out and say stuff that easily, you know? That's, like, not a thing. Like, you can't just, she can't just blurt out, I'm a vampire, right. okay? It's hard to come out like that, all right? For anybody, for any reason, asking someone what's wrong can be a very complex answer, okay? So, like, I feel like that's where we are with these two, you know, where he's just like, can't you just tell me what the problem is? And she's like, I really just can't come out and tell you. Like, it's not that simple. And, like, I love the way it plays. Like, I mean, we know it's she's a vampire, but this same conversation happens in so many relationships for so many reasons, you know? And it kind of plays that way, and I think that's due to the performances, it's due to the way that this film downplays the supernatural as much as it does. In a way, it makes sense that Garth still doesn't get it yet, you know, because so much of it feels like a normal conversation. You know, she's just dancing around the whole truth that she's the vampire. 
I love the performances here because they just feel so natural. And and he's still as a character not a hundred percent convinced yet. I don't think. I don't think he's got all of the pieces exactly. So like he has no reason to suspect she's the vampire at this point. That that's coming, I believe. But yeah, so like even if she said I'm a vampire, like what's he supposed to do with that information? Like how would he be able to take that seriously at this point? I'm not sure. But Zaleska has been spurned for the last time, and as Garth heads out. Zaleska and uh, Sandor decide they're going to abduct Janet and take her back to Transylvania. So while Garth is dealing with Lily, this is the scene where he brings that sort of that uh, hypnotism device. This is where he puts the pieces together, like everything that Van Helsing has told him up to this point about vampires and, you know, the, the clues about like where she was found. She was strolling through Chelsea. Zaleska's in Chelsea, found by Sandor outside of a bookstore and taken upstairs to a studio. Suddenly all of it is coming clear. And I love this scene. I mean, this is this is Lily's final scene. I want to give her just a quick shout out because I didn't I didn't mention her at the top when we went through the credits. But this is Nan Gray, who we will see again in The Invisible Man Returns in night from 1940. We are not done with her yet. She is the female lead in The Invisible Man Returns, so we get to look forward to that. But uh, yeah, this is her final scene here as she is giving Garth as much information as she can. She uh, eventually succumbs to her blood loss and dies. So now, like, the game, as they say, is afoot. And Garth kind of puts on his detective hat and starts to retrace Lily's steps and, and heads to Chelsea, finds the bookstore, and heads on upstairs to Zaleska's suite, her apartment. Her loft, her flat. When he discovers that, he immediately calls Sir Basil Humphrey, chief of police. Who, Like, I love this scene right here. Yes, this is an amazing scene. <laughs> He's in bed looking at his stamp collection. Yeah, getting ready for bed. I think it's a stamp collection. He's got a collection. Of yeah, like, it is. Um, it is because he can't find a certain one. He's asking his butler, like, have you seen this stamp? <laughs> and uh, he gets the phone call from, from Garth. He's explaining sort of everything that he has learned up to this point. And, you know, we found... Everything that's, that Van Helsing has been saying is true. Our vampire is uh, Zaleska. I have, you know, found her apartment, and we need to we need to find Zaleska before she leaves England because if they lose her, they may never get her back. So now we got Garth, Sir Basil, and Van Helsing all like as a Scooby Doo gang hunting Zaleska. It's pretty good. I love how the commissioner, like the guy, the guy like brings his warm milk or whatever he's like put that away get my gun <laughs> like we're going vampire hunting that's just such a fun little sequence it's so good so garth heads on up to the apartment and confronts zaleska who's who's still there and she basically spills the beans about who she is she's of the family dracula she's a vampire so on and so forth and implores garth to come back to transylvania with her and, and live with her for the rest of his days and he has no intention of doing that until he finds out that janet never made it to the party they were going to sandor has taken janet she is now the hostage and they're all going to end up going to transylvania yeah that's pretty cool i was not expecting us to uh go back to where it all began to be honest like that we're gonna go back to dracula's castle going back to transylvania here at the end very cool um and then there's like the little scene where everybody again is sort of brought up to speed i think it's the one where they're like where's jeffrey and they're like he chartered a plane and they're like oh damn it like that's exactly what we didn't want to do we wanted to like didn't they try and ground all the planes so no one could take off and first they're like well madame celeska took a plane well jeffrey's on a plane well 
we may as well go to Transylvania and go after him. So yeah, Dr. Garth gets on a plane all by himself. He finds out that they're gone. The, the police chief and Van Helsing show up and he explains the whole situation. They took Janet. We've got to find her. We have to stop them before they leave. Zaleska gets away. Just as he is about to leave, Van Helsing and uh, Sir Basil show up and he tells them everything that's happened. They have Janet. They're taking her back to Transylvania. And we have to not let them get on that plane. We have to do anything we can. Send out a dragnet at one point, he says, to stop them from getting on that plane. So there's like a whole montage where, you know, they're putting out this all points bulletin. To, if anybody sees them or, or whatever, you know, stop them from taking off. But they're too late, unfortunately. And then back at the police station, that's where we see Sir Basil and uh, Van Helsing trying to formulate a plan as to what to do next. And they get the phone call that Garth has, has, has chartered a plane on his own and is headed to Transylvania. And Van Helsing, very alarmed by this, you know, we have to stop him. He's going to his death. So now all of our characters are, are headed all the way back to the beginning of this saga thus far. Back to Castle Dracula in Transylvania. Transylvania looking a little different these days, which I can only assume this movie takes place, what, like a couple months after we left in the first movie? It, it couldn't have been more than like a year has gone by, right? This is probably a few days since Dracula was killed but you factor in the time from when dracula left transylvania and came to london yeah i would say that it's probably a couple of months uh like i'm so happy we're back in transylvania and everything but it feels more like we're in frankenstein's village i thought the same thing like we've got this big bavarian wedding going on and the streets are filled with like all the knee slapping dancing and or whatever you know it's like the big celebration and i was like these are not the distrustful quiet folk of the transylvania hill town uh where you couldn't even see castle dracula from and they had the remember the enormous crucifix just like guarding their territory and everything like, yes and and <laughs> and also i don't remember there being a town so close to the castle they are so close to the castle that like one of the women from the uh, the town is able to see the light come on you know, the, in the original Dracula, there's like this long journey to Castle Dracula, and it's up on this big hill. Yeah, he even mentions the pass or whatever, one of the crossroads. Borgo Pass, yeah. Yeah, just take me to Borgo Pass. Well, one thing I was thinking is, you know, this doesn't really explain the distance between the town and the castle at all, but like maybe because Dracula left and they got word of his death that like there, there's been just more celebrating and stuff, you know? So like the town's just, you know, more active and cheery is like now that count dracula's gone oh probably yeah it could be more lively he still doesn't explain the distance discrepancy but it definitely looks a little bit cheaper unfortunately you know considering how much money they sunk into this movie it looks a little bit less expensive here so i love and i don't love this moment just before garth shows up in transylvania it cuts from the town to the inside of castle dracula and Zaleska has that shot where she emerges from the coffin and her it's just her hand kind of like curled into like a like a claw you know it's very reminiscent of Lugosi emerging from his coffin at the beginning of Dracula so it's like maybe the third direct reference to Dracula in this movie I like it and I don't you know I kind of feel both ways about it like I do the others like it's unnecessary uh, I would have been happy if they didn't include it but at the same time like oh okay and they're they're drawing straight from Dracula the thing that I got from it, too, was that she's completely sort of, in this moment at least, given in to the 
whole vampire thing like she's yeah. pretty much like she's even impersonating her dad at that point right like yeah. she's like i'm gonna go sleep in his coffin i'm gonna go live in his house I and mean, she's really pouring it on unless that's more of that therapy of like surround yourself with the shit you want to get rid of in your life you know and like i don't know if it's that type of exposure therapy if it's that extreme i'm, I'm more inclined to think like she's full-on like embracing it at this point not even thinking about consequences I have to think that in this moment, she has realized that there's nothing that she can do to suppress these urges that she has. And so she has kind of leaned into the more villainous side of her nature. Um, this like she's full, full villain here. And I think she's great here. I, I mean, there's definitely a, a subtle change in her demeanor. You know, her performance is pretty cold all the way through which I like. I read somewhere that Gloria Holden was not really a fan of horror films, and that could explain why she kind of is the way she is in this movie. But I think it works really well. But here, she's like, she's edging megalomaniacal, like internally. Yeah, yeah. I would feel like throughout the movie, she's playing it more almost like distant, distracted almost at times of, of like her her thoughts of like, She's thinking of what she wants to say, but, you know, it's like, oh, I can't say that. So it's like, I just get the sense that she seems very distant a lot of the time. And then now she's very focused. Yeah, I definitely feel like a, a change in her demeanor. Here we get her legitimate plan. Like her plan has changed. Now Garth is coming and her plan is to keep him there always to change him into a vampire in exchange for Janet and Sandor hearing this. Uh, we sort of discussed this already, you know, he becomes very jealous and sort of a spurned lover. You know, it was always him that was supposed to be changed into a vampire and, and made immortal. And now that some other guy just gets to cut the line, he's not about to let that happen without some kind of a, a struggle. And, and I love his change here, too. Like, all of these performances in this scene are, are, are very, like, subtle changes. He suddenly takes on a more um, malicious tone. You know, he's always kind of like creepy but here he's angry and it's a very subtle change that i think works really well well what's interesting is it's pretty much the first time we see him be active like take action do something and and he's what he's and he's doing this for his freedom now at this point right so like i wasn't quite sure how to read it at first but now i'm pretty sure he was aiming for her right he was aiming mm -hmm. for madame zaleska and then you see him sort of set up again to shoot dr garth Basically, what happens is Dracula's daughter goes to Dr. Garth and is like, come with me, I'll turn you into a vampire and I'll let uh, Janet go. And he's like, okay, let's do that. It does take him some convincing, but ultimately he decides that his love for Janet is bigger than anything else. And he decides that he's going to sacrifice himself so that she can live. Yeah, and it's so with those words that an arrow comes flying out of nowhere directly into the heart of Dracula's daughter. And it's like, oh man, where did that come from? But I do believe, uh, probably watching, you see Sandor pluck his you, string the bow, and uh, he gets it ready to fire. I believe you do see him pull back and release that arrow. Yeah, and just as that goes down, Professor Van Helsing and Sir Basil Humphrey all arrive. <laughs> the Van Helsing gang. <laughs> yes, they, uh, they arrive just a little bit too late to stop Sandor from killing Zaleska, but they arrive in time to stop him from killing Dr. Garth and Janet. That's pretty much the end of the movie. We see uh, Zaleska out on the balcony with an arrow through her heart and everything that Van Helsing has said up to this point has been validated. And uh, all I could say is good luck convincing a jury. 
Well, there's way more witnesses, and they're in Transylvania. I don't think the town folk are going to, everyone's going to sort of sweep this under the rug. Well, this incident, but back in England, Van Helsing is still on the hook for Dracula. No body. There's no body. Dracula's body has been <laughs> cremated. There's no proof. He's not even going back. He's going to, home to Germany or wherever he really lives at this point. <laughs> fair fair enough. Fair enough. I love this closing line. This is really great because there was sort of a callback to what they said to Dracula when they're like, oh, when did Dracula die? And they're like, last night. And he's like, no, he actually died 5,000 years ago. And it's like, oh, snap. And then uh, they do the same thing here. It's like, she's dead. And he's like, no, he, she's already been dead for 100 years. It's a cool little like button on the whole movie, though. I feel that was such a great closing line, you know? It's like, she's not dead. She's been dead. Sir Basil comments on, on how beautiful she is, and, and Van Helsing says she was beautiful when she died 100 years ago. Yeah, it's a great, great line. I think it's a classic final line. I would say it's sort of reminiscent of Beauty Killed the Beast. Yeah, I mean, there were no real sort of closers in any of the other movies. I almost feel like, in retrospect, there should have been something like this with the original or, or even on The Invisible Man. You know, The Invisible Man, it just sort of ends with him becoming visible again, but there's no... It doesn't end on, like, a one-liner. Right. Which... You know, they don't have to be funny, but this is definitely like a like a line, you know, which I thought was cool that it was supposed to punctuate like the close of the film. And it's just a nice sense of closure. Absolutely. Well, that's the end of the film. And uh, did you have anything else you wanted to to add about Dracula's daughter? Well, I just got to say, like, I was very impressed. Like, this is way different than I was expecting, to be honest. I wasn't really expecting too much. You know, I was a little like, really? The, you said it's like they didn't think of a way to bring Bella back. Like, it's not actually Dracula. But when I turned it on and I really, first of all, I really got into like it being a direct sequel. And then when, when Dracula's daughter came on screen, it was like so mesmerizing. And then, the, yeah, like this story turning out to be more of like, I guess what would be like nowadays a psychological thriller, you mm -hmm. know, something like that, as opposed to you know, more action-oriented or supernatural. Yeah, I was very impressed. I like this one very much. This one I will hold in high regard. I think everybody should check this one out for sure. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, for people who don't love Dracula for how, like, it's it's very, like I said, it's very stagey, it's silent, a lot of it is silent. It can be a little bit difficult for some people to get through for those reasons. Like, I've met several people who just, who don't love Dracula the way a lot of people do. I think that this might be the best alternative within the Universal Monsters canon. I think memory serves. I mean, we'll definitely reevaluate, I think, once we get to the end. But of the other vampire, of the other Dracula films, this might be the best one other than Dracula, just in the way that, that, that the performances are great, that the, the narrative is grounded, it moves. I, wouldn't, I would never say there's a boring moment in this movie. It checks off a lot of the boxes. I can't really fault it for anything, except you know, it gets a little bit unbalanced in certain at certain times with some of the comedy and where they put that. Overall, I really like the characters here, and I really like uh, Zaleska as a character. You know, we talked about you know the Bride of Frankenstein being the the only iconic female monster for a long, long time, and she's only in Bride of Frankenstein for I don't think less than five minutes. I think Zaleska got shafted here. She's one of the best villains so far, and most people don't even talk about this movie. Definitely, she deserves to be on the T-shirts. You know, the lists. 
the posters. Like, I totally feel like she belongs there. Now, I feel like maybe the one reason that she's not is because visually there isn't anything exceptionally sort of like off about her you know what i mean like she's just a very attractive woman she doesn't have like a giant scar coming down her face you know she doesn't even have fangs or anything like that right it's probably harder to sell on her image than it is on her character that's a fair point but i don't think that that's necessarily like moving forward i don't think we should do that like i think we should definitely celebrate this character way more in, uh, among the pantheon of these early horror monsters yeah i mean as i said when we talked bride of frankenstein i think the greatest thing about that character is that she looks cool you know she's she looks great on a t-shirt she looks great on a poster zaleska doesn't have the same sort of striking image the coolest look she has in the whole movie is when she's you know covered all you could see are her eyes or even if you take those away like just her shrouded in black just looks very striking it doesn't have that sort of wow factor that the bride's look had you know it's unfortunate because this again is maybe the best female monster that we've seen she just doesn't have the visual i just wish more people would talk about her because she's great yeah it's true like yeah give her you know if they only thought like give her the streak in the hair as well right to tie it in somehow or something because otherwise she almost looks just like the grim reaper in a lot of it and i guess like that's okay too like i like that reading as well Uh, but it would have been nice just to have like a distinguishing mark or something as well to like point her out in profile right yeah like we say that a lot earlier like all these other characters for the most part like even the invisible man just the way that he leans you could even tell that it's him so like if she had that that would just be yeah the best yeah and and, and i don't mean to um to suggest that elsa lanchester doesn't deserve her iconic status you know she's 100 percent deserving of that and, and i would never take that away. i just mean we need more of that uh, we need to give more of these women credit and i would like to see more of them on t-shirts and posters and yeah, the recognition. Exactly. We got to make a shirt with her on it, Dan. That's our mission, right? <laughs> like, that's the next shirt on our website. Is <laughs> I would love to get a t-shirt designed with Gloria Holden's face on it. That would be wonderful. I guess with that, we should probably crawl back to our coffins. But don't worry, we will return on Friday, June 25th to discuss 1939's Son of Frankenstein, starring Boris Karloff, Bela Lugosi as Igor, and Basil Rathbone as the son of Henry Frankenstein. Wow, we're finally getting to Igor. And uh, I remember the first time I learned that Igor was played by Bela Lugosi, it blew my mind. Yeah, I'm still I'm still processing that information. <laughs> <laughs> In the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at MonsterMadePod, on Instagram and Facebook at The Monsters That Made Us. As I mentioned just a few seconds ago, you can email us at TheMonstersThatMadeUs at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Dan Cologne And Mike, where can listeners find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter as well at the underscore Mikester. You could find all the other shows that I'm on at CageClub.me, Facebook.com slash CageClub, or at CageClubPod on Twitter and Instagram. Catch me here on this show last Friday of every month. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to support the show, please, please give us a five-star rating on iTunes. It helps more people discover the show. Um, if you'd like to become a Patreon supporter as well, you can do so at patreon.com slash the monsters that made us. And we can't forget about our t-shirts, Mike. Our t-shirts are on TeePublic. You can find the link for that in our aforementioned Twitter and Instagram bios. Hopefully, fingers crossed, we will have a Dracula's Daughter design coming down the line. For all other things Cage Club related, head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Stay spooky, everybody. Stay spooky, everybody.